Welcome to this presentation of First Baptist Church Loeb. We're glad to have you joining us today. Our mission at FBC Loeb is to bring glory to God by being disciple makers. For that purpose, we present the following resource that it may be a blessing. All right, you can grab a Bible and turn to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, in case you use one of our pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 871. And while you're finding your place, if you talk to people or if you look at statistics or polls or research studies, then you probably know that one of the most common objections to the Christian faith is that people say uh, that Christians are so hypocritical, right? They say one thing, but then they do something else, and that discredits their message. And, and we could talk about how often that's truly the case versus how often that's simply a, a convenient excuse, uh, but certainly that should never be the case for the church, uh, to, to be comprised of, of people who say one thing and, and then yet do another. Certainly Jesus was aware of this tendency in people, and this morning he's going to address his disciples about the danger of hypocrisy. And so we're in Luke chapter 12, and we're going to pick up beginning in verse 1. It says, In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. And so last week, Jesus took on some of the Pharisees and their religious lawyers, and he exposed them for their superficial spirituality. And as the passage ended, we saw that in response to this, the Pharisees and lawyers engaged in, a, in an all-out blitz of constantly harassing Jesus with accusations and trick questions and anything that they could think of to try to discredit him and stop his ministry. But as we move into chapter 12, we see that the Pharisees' strategy has overwhelmingly failed. Right? Luke tells us that, that thousands of people have crowded together. And the word here actually indicates that we've reached the point where it's no longer possible to count the people. And in fact, Luke tells us that it's so crowded that people are actually starting to trample each other. Right? So it's like Black Friday here with, with people trying to get close enough to see and to hear Jesus. All right, and in this situation, Jesus begins to speak to his disciples at the end of verse 1. And he tells them, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Right, now, hypocrisy refers to, to pretending to be or to do something, while in reality you are or do something else. Right, the the uh, original hypocrites were the ancient Greek actors who wore masks as they played a role in a, in a play. Right? So they were pretending to be someone that they weren't. Right, well, it's one thing to pretend to be someone that you're not in a play. It's a completely different thing to do that in real life. And so, as we saw last week, the Pharisees look really good on the outside. They've got lots of little religious rules that they follow that make them appear godly, 
But on the inside, they're full of greed and wickedness, and they don't truly love God. Now, you'll notice here that Jesus compares hypocrisy to leaven. And so leaven, or or yeast, is an ingredient that's added to bread to make it rise. Uh, And in that sense, leaven is a good thing. We wouldn't want to eat bread that that baked as just a small, hard lump of of dough. But for the purposes of Jesus' illustration... The thing about leaven is that while it increases the size of bread, it does not increase the substance. Okay, the the amount of dough that you start with is the amount of dough that you finish with. The leaven doesn't add to it or create any more of it. And so you may walk up to the oven and take a peek inside at one point and say, oh wow, look at all that bread. But the reality is that you don't actually have any more bread than what you had at the beginning. The the leaven simply causes the bread to expand so that it looks bigger. And in a similar way, the Pharisees are full of the leaven of hypocrisy. Their their outward actions make them appear to be much more than what they really are on the inside. And so Jesus warns his followers to avoid that and to pursue authentic discipleship instead. Then in verses 2 and 3, he explains, Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. You see, the Pharisees do what they do in order to impress people, and in order to gain admiration for their, their super spiritualness. But if people actually knew the reality of their hearts then they would reject them. They would reject them for for the reality. But but the truth is that there's coming a day when the reality of our hearts will be revealed. And and at that time, there will be an evaluation of much greater uh, consequence than simply what other people think about us. We will be judged by God. Jesus says that on the day of judgment, the things that we've done the words that we've spoken, and and even our innermost thoughts will be exposed and be judged by God. And if our our outward actions are inconsistent with the inward reality of our hearts, then that will prove, uh, all that religious activity will prove useless in the end. The truth is that, that we may can fool other people in this life into thinking that we're something that we're not, but we can't fool God. And one day, Jesus declares that our entire lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly, are going to be exposed with eternal consequences. And so we should live our lives in light of that reality. So Jesus calls his his followers to avoid hypocrisy, which by implication is a call to, to cultivate a genuine spirituality that is shaped by love for him and that leads to true obedience. But the the Reality is that rejecting the way of the Pharisees is inevitably going to bring the disciples into conflict with them and with other people as well. And so next, Jesus is going to give instructions for how to deal with that as we pick up again beginning in verse 4. Jesus says, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value 
than many sparrows. So we've already seen that the Pharisees and their lawyers are, are dedicated to stopping Jesus. And so it's only logical to assume that they're going to be equally committed to stopping Jesus' disciples as well. And so as we pick up again in verse 4, Jesus says to the disciples, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. And so Jesus foresees that his enemies will be willing to kill in order to stop the message of the gospel, and that they will use the, the prospect of death as an incentive to try to get his disciples to compromise and to abandon the faith. Right? They'll put you on the spot. Stop doing what you're doing, or we're going to kill you. And we saw last week in chapter 11, verse 49, that Jesus is going to send prophets and apostles to carry the message of who he is and what he's done forward to the world, and at least some of them will be killed. And as we went through the book of Acts a few years ago, we saw the fulfillment of that as the early church spread the gospel across the ancient world in the face of constant opposition. And of course, according to tradition, all but one of the apostles died as a result of persecution. And so this is a real threat. Well, in response, Jesus directs our attention away from humans who have the ability to kill our physical life, and he places it instead on God, who has the power to cast into hell for all eternity. He says, don't fear people, fear God. The thing is that this world and this life feel so permanent to us that the prospect of dying is very intimidating. That's a real thing. But if we have the proper perspective, then we realize that what comes after this life for better or for worse, is of much greater consciousness, uh, consequence, infinitely greater consequence. You see, the, the rulers and the authorities of this world want us to think that they are in control and that they have all the power and that we don't want to cross them. But Jesus reminds us that God is in control and he has all the power. One of the greatest leaders of the early church and the, the generation after the apostles was a man named Justin Martyr. And as you might guess, Justin was someone who died for his faith. That's where the, the martyr came from. And, uh, but before he was killed for his faith, he wrote a letter of defense uh, to the Roman emperor uh, trying to explain uh, some, some misconceptions about Christians and, and explain what we believe and to plead with him for the, the ability to worship without the fear of persecution. And, and he, he emphasized that Christians are good citizens, right? We're not trying to cause trouble. We want to live in peace. But he says, at the end of the day, our ultimate loyalty is to Jesus. And if we come to a point where we have to choose between being loyal to Jesus or being killed, we'll take death. And in the, the most famous passage of the letter, he emphasizes that persecution by the Roman Empire will ultimately fail to break the church. And he says, you can kill us, but you cannot do us any real harm. You can kill us, but you cannot do us any real harm. You see, Justin understood and believed Jesus' words here, and he proved it by giving up his life for his faith. But Jesus also encourages us not to fear by emphasizing the love and the care that God has for his people. In verse 6, he says, Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? 
and not one of them is forgotten before God. And so here, Jesus makes an argument from from the lesser to the greater. First, he refers to sparrows, which which we see in the verse, were sold at the market for for five, for two pennies, the equivalent of two pennies. In other words, sparrows were sold so cheaply that they were practically useless. They, They had no value at all. They were worthless. And yet, Jesus insists that God is actively involved in overseeing the details of each one of their lives. God is not just a creator who puts everything together, sets things in motion, and then backs off so that whatever happens, happens. Now, he is intimately involved in every single action that happens in every single place at all times, every single moment in this world. In verse 7, he adds, why even the hairs of your head are all numbered. God knows the number of hairs that are on our head. Now, some of you aren't impressed by that because you don't have any hair. You're like, I know how much hair is on my head too. But but, but that's the the reality. God knows the number of hairs on our head. And that may seem like a really weird thing to say, but it's meant to be reassuring. Like, I don't even know how many hairs are on my own head. Right? The, the, the process of trying to figure that out would be incredibly tedious, if not impossible. And frankly, at the end of the day, it's a completely useless bit of information. Right? Like, who cares how many hairs are on my head? But church, that's exactly the point. God has that kind of intimate knowledge about each one of us. He knows us in ways that we don't even know ourselves, and he cares for us with that level of detail. And then at the end of the section, Jesus draws out the conclusion when he says, Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so think about it. If God takes care of animals that, again, are practically worthless, then how much more will he care for those who have been created in his image? And and even more, those who have placed their hope in the Messiah. You see, we can face the reality of physical death because God has promised to be with us. And because we know that that physical death is not going to be the end of the story. In many ways, it is just the beginning. And and so just as the momentary human accolades of of hypocrisy pale in comparison to the the eternal judgment that awaits it, so in the same way the momentary sufferings of this life cannot even begin to compare to the eternal weight of glory that awaits those who are faithful to Jesus. Jesus doesn't promise that life will always be easy. In context, he's basically promising the exact opposite. But he does promise that we will never be in circumstances where he abandons us or where he is not intimately paying attention to what we need. And so in light of that confidence, he's going to call us to stand firm as we pick up one last time, beginning in verse 8. Beginning in verse 8, he says, And I tell you, Everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
So picking up again in verse 8, Jesus continues teaching and says, And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And so here Jesus pictures a future moment where a disciple is brought to a moment of decision, where they're forced to choose between remaining faithful to Jesus or, or denying him. And, and walking away from the faith. Now, this is a, a moment where, where we have to choose to be faithful to the Lord or face consequences, whether that be imprisonment or a fine or even execution. And he says that if we acknowledge him before men, meaning that we maintain our loyalty to him, then he will acknowledge us before the angels on the day of judgment, meaning that he will identify us as true disciples who belong to him. But if we deny him, then he will deny us, meaning that he will disassociate himself from us and place us with those who have rejected him in line for judgment. So those who acknowledge Jesus in the face of, of pressure will be saved, and those who deny him will be condemned. And at first, that may sound like a, a form of, of works-based salvation. Right? Like in, in Islam, it's believed that if, if you die as a martyr, for the faith, then you immediately go to paradise, no questions asked, no matter what. Right, but, but we know that we can't actually earn our salvation by anything that we do. We, we must embrace what Jesus has done for us by faith. And I don't think that Jesus is saying anything different here. Right, so in chapter 12 of his first letter to the Corinthians, Paul declares that nobody can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. And of course, by that, he doesn't mean that literally nobody can say that, that sentence and utter those words. Anybody can say the words, Jesus is Lord. What he means by that is that it's only possible to truly confess Jesus as Lord if you have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit and been given new spiritual life through faith in Jesus. And so applying that to Jesus' words here, we see that when, when the moment of truth comes under persecution— only true believers will hold fast to their profession of faith. A, a hypocrite will deny the Lord under pressure. And so understand, persecution does not make believers, it reveals them. And, and Jesus encourages us here with the promise that those who acknowledge him will be acknowledged by him before the angels on the day of judgment. And then in verse 10, Jesus continues, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. All right, Jesus essentially says, you can talk trash about me, not that you should, but you can do that and still come out okay. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, then you have crossed a line that cannot be uncrossed. Now we saw a couple of weeks ago that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being empowered by Satan in, in, in the miracles that he performed in his ministry. They saw the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus, and yet they chose to slander it by, by uh, mischaracterizing it uh, by, as being satanic. Right? That's a blasphemous statement. And of course, over the centuries, there's been a lot of debate over whether or not it's, it's actually possible to commit this sin today, or whether this was something that was specific to the earthly life of Jesus. Uh, and so I'll just say two things about it. Number one, if you're concerned that you may have committed this sin, then, then I would think that most likely you haven't. 
Right? So the, the, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit appears to be a stubborn rejection of his work, which isn't concerned about consequences. And so if you are concerned about the potential consequences of something you think you might have done, I think it was safe to say that you, you have not blasphemed the Holy Spirit. And then the second thing that I would say about it is don't push it. Don't push it. Can, can you do this today? Can you not do this today? I'm not really sure. But if you recognize the truth of God's word, if you sense the Holy Spirit leading you to repent of your sin and trust in Christ, then then don't mess around and play games. Respond in obedience. And then at the end of the section, Jesus gives some final instructions about what to do in the moment of persecution. He says, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So if if you're determined to follow Christ at all costs, but but you're worried that that in the moment you're not necessarily going to know what to say or how to respond to those who are are coming at you, Jesus promises that you don't have to be concerned. He tells us that in that moment, the Holy Spirit will give us exactly what we need to say. And this is yet another promise that we saw fulfilled several times in the book of Acts with Peter, with Stephen, with Paul, among others. Again, Jesus warns us that life as a disciple can be very difficult, but he also promises that God will be with us to provide for what we need as we remain faithful. And so in our passage this morning, Jesus warns his disciples against hypocrisy, And he calls us to stand firm in the face of opposition that we will face as a result of our faithfulness to him. And in light of our text, it's worth asking the question, do you have a genuine relationship with the Lord, or are you just pretending? Do you have a genuine relationship with the Lord, or are you just pretending? Do you do the spiritual things you do because you love Jesus, or because by doing them, you get something else that's what you're really looking for. And don't be too quick to answer these questions. The truth is that it's just about as easy to deceive ourselves as it is to deceive other people. Maybe you've gone to church your whole life. Maybe you've been on mission trips. Maybe you post spiritual memes on Facebook. Maybe you help old ladies walk across the street in Jesus' name, whatever the case may be. But we have to understand that none of those things can make us right with God. We have to embrace the gospel truth of what only Jesus has done for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And we also need to understand that any human accolades that we get from our religious or spiritual activity will be completely worthless if we step into eternity and that's all that we have to show for ourselves. That's a horrible investment. So who are you really? Or think about it from this angle. If if push came to shove and you had to choose between faithfulness to Christ or walking away, what would you do? You know, it's been true for some time now that that our culture is not going to help us follow Jesus. It's going to offer a steady stream of distractions and and competing agendas, and so we have to be intentional about making discipleship our top priority in life. But now it seems increasingly true that our culture is actually going to try to stop us from following Jesus. That that being faithful to him is going to become increasingly uncomfortable 
and inconvenient, and, and in time, perhaps even costly or painful. So we have to decide right now what our response will be if and when that moment comes. Right? When, when the time happens and we're not just talking about it anymore, will we be faithful to Jesus or will we deny him? Now, lest we come across too strongly here, I think it's important for us to acknowledge that none of us live up to our ideals all the time. Right? All of us fall short. And, and in James chapter 3, right, we all stumble in many ways. And in our series through 1 John, we read that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Right? All of us act inconsistently with what we believe at times. Uh, so the, the question, but there's a sense in which all of us are, are hypocrites. And the question comes down to whether or not we fight against that tendency in our hearts as we pursue Christ-likeness, or whether we're intentionally engaging in hypocrisy in order to make ourselves look like something that we're not. Right? So how closely does your inner life match your outward life? Again, nobody is perfect. We can even consider the example of Peter. Right? Peter denied the Lord on the night of his arrest. And we know from, from Galatians chapter 2 that, that later on he compromised the gospel with hypocrisy among the Gentiles in Antioch. Right? But both times when he was confronted with his sin, he acknowledged it, he repented of it, and he got back on track again. And so what about you? If someone offers you a, a loving word of correction, if they challenge you about something that, that seems off about your life, do, do you get puffed up in an effort to try to protect your image like the Pharisees? Or do you receive it humbly and with gratitude for the opportunity to, to examine yourself and to grow, even if you don't necessarily end up agreeing with the correction? Do you repent of your sin, or do you just work harder to keep it hidden? Friends, what the Lord offers us is so much better than any alternative we could come up with. As we said last week, Jesus hates hypocrisy and empty religion, but he invites hypocrites to come to him for forgiveness and true spiritual life. And so this morning, may our hearts be sincere towards the Lord as we follow him in authentic discipleship. Let's pray together.